Welcome to the Two Journeys Bible Study Podcast. This podcast is just one of the many resources available to you for free from Two Journeys Ministry. If you're interested in learning more, just head over to twojourneys.org. Now on to today's episode. This is episode 37 in our Acts Bible Study Podcast. This episode is entitled, Paul's Co-Laborers for Christ, Priscilla, Aquila, Apollos, where we'll discuss Acts chapter 18, verses 18 through 28. I'm Wes Treadway, and I'm here with Pastor Andy Davis. Andy, what are we going to see in these verses that we're looking at today? So we're going to see, as we already mentioned in the title of this of this um, section, uh, Paul's fellow workers. We're going to see uh, some key individuals, Priscilla, Aquila, and Apollos. We're going to get to know them a little bit and see how God uses them. It also is suggestive of all of church history that there are all kinds of individuals who have done great things for Christ, and we don't know much about them. Mm. We know far more about some than others, so we know more about Paul than we do about these three, and we know more about these three than we do about people who have never made it into the register of history. But the Lord raises up laborers for the harvest field in answer to many prayers from Matthew chapter 9. The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out laborers into his harvest field. So the book of Acts is suggestive that not just the the famous people, the acts of the apostles, the apostles uh, do great things, but there are many other individuals who serve in significant ways as well. well. Let me go ahead and read Acts chapter 18, verses 18 through 28. After this, Paul stayed many days longer, and then took leave of the brothers, and set sail for Syria, and with him Priscilla and Aquila. At Centria he had cut his hair, for he was under a vow. And they came to Ephesus, and he left them there. But he himself went into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. When they asked him to stay for a longer period, he declined. But on taking leave of them, he said, I will return to you if God wills. And he set sail from Ephesus. When he had landed at Caesarea, he went up and greeted the church, and then went down to Antioch. After spending some time there, he departed and went from one place to the next through the region of Galatia and Phrygia, strengthening all the disciples. Now a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was an eloquent man, competent in the scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord. And being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he knew only the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue. But when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. And when he wished to cross to Achaia, the brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. When he arrived, he greatly helped those who through grace had believed, for he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the scriptures that the Christ was Jesus. Andy, why did Paul leave Corinth, and what does this teach us about the mercy of God as revealed in verses 9 and 10? Well, Paul is continually moving because that's his call. It's always been his ambition. He said to preach the gospel, Christ was not named, so he wouldn't be building on someone else's foundation. But with that image of building on a foundation, we also have the sense that Paul stays in some places for a good long while, a couple of years sometimes. So it's a combination ministry for Paul. He's, he's going to do breadth through moving from place to place to place, itinerating, but he's going to do depth by staying in some strategic locations for as much as two years or more uh, to teach the word of God deeply and thoroughly. So he does both. But fundamentally, he's not going to stay in any one place as their pastor. Uh, he is a trailblazing, church-planting apostle to the Gentiles who so has to keep moving. 
Now, Paul's voyage to Syria was across the Aegean Sea, a dangerous journey in those days. Why did Paul want to go to Syria? Well, he wanted to go back to his his sending church in Antioch. Syria is just north of Israel and set on the um, the easternmost part of the Mediterranean Sea. So he's going back uh, back to his home base, the sending church in Antioch, and he's he's going to end up there. Um, you know, ultimately in our text. So he's heading there um, and going to get renewed, refreshed, and tell them what's happened, and he's going to go out from there again. And so that's that's just the nature of, of the, uh, the, the lifestyle that God led him to. Now, who is with Paul? And what do we know about his companions? All right. So um, as as he sails from there, he's accompanied by Priscilla and Aquila. And we met them last time at the beginning of Acts 18. They were tent makers who lived in Corinth. They had been expelled uh, from Italy. Um, so they were Jewish. They were Jewish followers of Christ who were tent makers. And he struck up a friendship with them in Corinth. Andy, is it significant that Priscilla is usually listed ahead of Aquila in Scripture? I don't think so, but I do – I'm saying that many people think it is. Hmm. So here we have to get into some aspects of what's generally known as evangelical feminism. Uh, evangelical feminism is a combination of – evangelical doctrine of scripture, inerrancy, the inspiration authority of the word of God, so it's not liberal theology, but also a, a sense that women can and should be anything that they want to be, including pastors, apostles, missionaries, anything, that there are no gender-based roles in the church, which uh, we believe as complementarians is unbiblical. There are gender-based roles both in the church and in the family. Um, and so there's debates about that. But those that seek to make much of women in the ministry, so to speak, and, and I never like that because every Christian should have a ministry. But when they mean the ministry, they mean women pastors, really, women uh, women leaders of local churches. And so uh, they scour the scriptures, the entire 66 books of the Bible, to find examples of godly female leaders. Mm. Well, you're going to come up pretty empty, actually. There just aren't many clearly established. I think there's really only one, and that's the prophetess Deborah in the book of Judges. She's the only godly leader of men in the entire Bible. Hmm. Uh, the rest just fit into roles. People do make much of, of Priscilla and Aquila because uh, she's listed first. I say she's the leader in the relationship, but it's just I wouldn't build a case on that. If that's the best you've got, you don't have much. Um, and we're going to circle back later because Priscilla and Aquila together uh, share key information, doctrinal information with Apollos, and they say this is an example of a woman teaching a man, and so they make much of it. Um, sadly, I think pitting scripture against scripture, where Paul says in First Timothy two, I do not permit a woman to teach or have authority over over a man. She must be or over a man. She must be silent. And so they say, yeah, but what about this? And so we need to answer that. So no, I don't think it's all that significant that she's listed first. Um, it, you know, it could be that he had more of a connection with her in some way, et cetera. But to build a whole doctrine of female leadership in the church based on the ordering of this married couple's names in the Bible is unhelpful. Now, verse 18 ends with an interesting detail. What's the significance of Paul having his hair cut off? Well, um, right before we started, I looked ahead uh, to Acts 21 where, where there's a parallel passage that talks about the cutting off of hair uh, in response to a vow. 
And so this is when Paul arrives in Jerusalem and um, some leaders there in the church come to Paul and say, you know, we've got to be very careful because some people are, are saying some things about you, saying that you're telling people to turn away from the laws of Moses and not live according to our customs. So here's some advice. There are these four men who are with us who have made a vow. So there's that language of a vow. Take these men and join in their purification rites and pay their expenses so that they can have their heads shaved. So there's this idea of purification and a shaving off of hair. Kind of reminds me of the Nazarite vow and, frankly, of Samson, Hmm. who lost power when his head was shaved. But there could be some aspect of letting your hair grow to a certain point and then shaving it off as a display of piety and purification in preparation uh, for some act of service to God. So that seems to be the pattern here. It's not anywhere specifically commanded, but it's just something that – people took upon themselves to do. So this brings us into a significant question of the taking of religious or spiritual vows. And that was a big deal in the Middle Ages. Obviously, monastic vows would be one of the number one things that people would take. And, you know, Jesus said, let your yes be yes and your no, no. Uh, It's not something Christians generally do is vow this and vow that. And I vow that by the end of today, I'll do this or that. People make goals. They have commitments, etc. But um, sometimes... In the New Testament here, there is the idea of making a vow to God. Ecclesiastes says when you make a vow, keep it. If you're going to say you're going to do something to God, you better do it. So, But that's the Old Testament. That usually had to do with animal sacrifice, et cetera. I, I promise that I'll give you know, the best fatted calf I have to the Lord, et cetera, those, those types of vows. But generally we Christians just seek to let our yes be yes and our no no and make pledges and commitments in prayer, but not these kinds of vows. But at any rate, Paul did it, and it seems to be a purification ritual. When he arrived in Ephesus, why did Paul leave Priscilla and Aquila to go into the Jewish synagogue? You know, I really don't know. Um, you know, we learned from the beginning of the chapter that they were Jews, so, you know, they would have been welcome in the temple area, um, and so, or the synagogue area, sorry. Um, uh, so they're they're in a synagogue, so it could be just they had other things to do, and it just that's historically what happened. So I don't see any good reason that they wouldn't have gone with him right to the synagogue. So you know, one thing that strikes me, Andy, is they had been partners with him in various aspects of his ministry. So it could have been some logistics that needed to be taken care of as he went to do what he had given himself and his time and his life to in proclaiming the gospel and seeking to win fellow yeah. Jews. So perhaps there was some work that needed to be done, and they were yeah. just sharing that load with him. Well, listen, this is the whole thing. The book I wrote on heaven, um, The Glory Now Revealed, says there's a lot of stuff we don't know. Hmm. And so we're going to find out in heaven answers to questions just like that one. So officially the answer on this podcast is, I don't know why they separated <laughs> at this point. What was the response of the Jews? And why do you think Paul declined to spend more time with them? Yeah, it was it, here, nothing but positive, And that's unusual. Usually there's a division. Mm-hmm. All right, Jews that believe, Jews that reject. But here it just seems like they're interested and they want to hear hear from him more. Um, and they ask him to spend more time. And he said, no. Again, why? We don't know. But he's got an agenda. I think he wants to get to Antioch. He wants mm-hmm. to go back there. And so uh, he says, but if God, if it is God's will, I will come back. And by the way, it is such a, a, a good exem- uh, example here of the statement in James. Instead, we ought to say, if it is the Lord's will, we will live and do this or that. So we should always be thinking it. I don't think we have to add Lord willing or if it is God's will, you know, sprinkled throughout any future plans. But we should mm-hmm. always think it. We should realize we don't know if we'll be alive tomorrow. Mm-hmm. So we ought to always think at least if it is the Lord's will or if it is God's will. So Paul gives us an example of that. 
So Paul chooses not to stay with them longer. Where does he go after leaving Ephesus? And what does it mean that he went up and greeted the church? All right, so he lands at Caesarea, which is the main port there on e- uh, in the eastern Mediterranean. So it's where, where they disembarked from. Um, and then uh, they went up to uh, the church at Antioch. So uh, that was their sending church, and Paul wanted to give a report to the church at Antioch. It's interesting. These verses almost read like a travel diary. You've got yeah. one place. He leaves and goes on to the next. Yeah. After leaving Antioch, where did Paul go next? Well, he goes up into Galatia and Phrygia. So Galatia is in modern-day Turkey. So he's getting back more to his home area of Tarsus and that kind of thing. That's an area he would have been very familiar with. But he's going um, throughout there mostly for the purpose of working with the established churches. He's going from church to church now. doesn't seem to be primarily evangelistic, although knowing Paul, any opportunity he had to preach the gospel, he would have. Mm-hmm. But he's going to strengthen the disciples moving throughout that region. This is um, a very of a, of a short mission trip, but it's more of a kind of a church leader trip going from place to place, making sure that the churches are strong. And that's what Luke concludes this section by telling us that he went about and the churches were strengthened or the disciples were strengthened as a result of his ministry. Yeah, praise God. Where did Paul meet Apollos and what does Luke tell us about him? Okay, so he goes to Ephesus at this point. So he's back at that significant city of Ephesus. Uh, we're going to spend time there in chapter 19. And then chapter 20, the uh, elders from the church at Ephesus come and Paul greets them. So it's a very significant church. So he goes to Ephesus and there he meets this uh, Jew, it says, named Apollos, who is a native of Alexandria. Now, Alexandria, uh, if it just says Alexandria, we assume it's the most famous Alexandria which is in Egypt. Now, Alexander the Great established something like 25 Alexandrias throughout his empire. He liked his name. He <laughs> liked himself. Hmm. All right. He was an egomaniac. He believed he was an incarnation of a god who should be worshipped. So everywhere he went, he's leaving Alexandrias. But this is a significant city, still um, extant today, in northern Egypt. So that's where he's from. A very significant Jewish population is there. Um, and uh, at any rate, he comes up to Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey. Uh, remember the letters to the seven churches in the book of Revelation. Ephesus is one of them, the first one that's mentioned. As a matter of fact, it was a postal route um, on, in the western part of modern-day Turkey uh, near the Mediterranean Sea. And so he meets this man, Apollos, a Jewish man. Now, we're also told that he was an eloquent man and competent in the scriptures. Mm -hmm. But how was it possible also for Apollos to teach about Jesus accurately without having heard any of the events of his life, but only the baptism of John? Right. So you go to verse 28, and it says that Apollos vigorously refuted the Jews in public debate, proving from the scriptures that Jesus was the Christ. Mm. Well, there it is. You just read through the book of Romans and you see all of the Old Testament scriptures that Paul quotes. That's how you do it. You want to know how to preach the gospel from the Old Testament? Romans will tell you. And and frankly, the entire New Testament, the gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, constantly quoting Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, mm. the Psalms. Jesus said, Moses wrote about me. And for that 40-day seminar, seminary at the beginning of the book of Acts, uh, Jesus spent time 
time showing them the things that were written about him in the uh, books of Moses and the law and the prophets and and the writings and he does the same thing in Luke 24 and so it was there and uh, you know Apollos was very knowledgeable of the scriptures and uh, John the Baptist if he knew John the Baptist heightened his awareness that the time had, had was coming for the kingdom of God was drawing near hmm. and so he was looking perhaps at some verses that John the Baptist had showed him uh, in the Old Testament so again this is the Old Testament what we call the Old Testament obviously the New Testament didn't exist yet so Paulus was teaching the scriptures, as they're called here, Old Testament, as we've just talked about. What does Luke tell us about the manner of teaching and style of Apollos? And what did Priscilla and Aquila do when they heard him? Well, Apollos, it says, spoke with great fervor. That's what my translation has. What does yours say in verse 25? He began to speak boldly. Boldly. All right. So there's passion. It's truth on fire with this man. He's a very, very good speaker. Apollos is well known, and he's mentioned prominently in 1 Corinthians, uh, where he came after Paul and used his articulate gifts, his eloquence, to establish the church and to move it ahead mm-hmm. in doctrine. So uh, that's why some said, I follow Paul. Uh, others said, I follow Apollos. And some preferred him because Paul was not a charis- – well, I don't say charismatic. I would say <laughs> not a dramatic or, or exciting speaker. People are like, huh. Um, but the doctrine was there and all that. But with Apollos, you've got eloquence and passion coupled with really accurate biblical knowledge. That's a pretty powerful combination. That's what he had before he talked to Priscilla and Aquila. So he's doing all of this and they heard him and they were impressed, but they knew there were some significant things missing. Clearly, John the Baptist came to get everyone ready for the Messiah who was coming. So we have to think, what do we know about John's message? And his message was, do you think I am the one? I am not, but he's coming after me, the thongs of whose sandals I'm not worthy to untie. And he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. I only only baptize you with water. He'll baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. And, and he will gather his weed into his barn and burning up the chaff with unquenchable fire. So John spoke passionately. So Apollos probably picked up on that and preached similar messages. What else? I don't know if uh, he, he, I don't think he got as far as John chapter one when Jesus came to be baptized. Mm. And John pointed at him and said, behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. So it may be that John taught that there was coming someone who would be the lamb of God who would take the, away the sins of the world. Uh, but, you know, Apollos didn't know that it had happened. Uh, so I don't know how far he went on teaching about Jesus accurately. Uh, just You could just nestle yourself in the messages that we have from John the Baptist and get a sense of it. And then all of the prophetic scriptures are available, uh, the 39 books of the Old Testament, if you know what to look for. And so it wouldn't surprise me that John the Baptist was a tremendous Old Testament scholar and mentor in scripture. Mm. So he's got all that right. What is he missing? He's missing history. He's missing what actually happened. Hmm. that one day there was someone who came and his name was Jesus Christ and he came down to be baptized by John and John said, I need to be baptized by you and do you come to me and behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world and I've seen and I testify that he is the Son of God. So Priscilla and Aquila took Apollos home and said, let me tell you Hmm. about Jesus, the Son of God. 
just do that. Mark's gospel, Jesus, the son of God, son of God. Okay. And so what happened? Well, let me tell you about his mighty miracles. Let me tell you about him walking on water and stilling the storm and all the stuff that you walk through in, in the gospels. And it's, and you know, Paulus probably his mouth was open. He's like, this is incredible. Hmm. And so there it is. That's Priscilla and Aquila sharing with them. Now, there's no doubt that Priscilla was a woman. There's no doubt that she and her husband together are sharing things with Apollos uh, that are doctrinal and significant. Well, here's the thing. Paul's prohibition against women teaching or having authority over men uh, does not preclude women from doing evangelism. We've never thought that. You, you can't say a woman on a plane sitting next to a man can't share the gospel mm. with another man. Mm. A, a simple, straight reading of 1 Timothy 2, not understanding context, would think, no, she can't share the gospel with him. The gospel is rich with doctrinal implications, and we teach the gospel. So we don't think that evangelism, namely the communication of information about Jesus, uh, is is precluded or forbidden by 1 Timothy 2. What is? Well, there are roles that are played in a local church, the role of elder or Bible teachers in a local church, not just elder though, Bible teachers as well, that have a formal role to play for the ongoing training of disciples. That is what is precluded in Mm. a timeless fashion in 1 Timothy 2. For the reason Paul gives is Adam was formed first, then Eve. has nothing to do with sin. has to do with God's order and creation. And so whatever Priscilla and Aquila were doing, and however much individuals want to make about that, we can't pit Scripture against Scripture and try to overturn Scripture by Scripture. This is a historical moment in which a married couple is sharing relevant evangelistic material to Apollos, filling in his mind with historical facts he didn't have. Mm. So I don't have any problem with a woman doing that. The First Timothy 2 prohibition has to do with teaching roles in a local church and that, that they are restricted uh, to men when it comes to teaching other men. Andy, what does Luke go on to tell us about Apollos' ministry in Achaia and what help did the Christians in Ephesus give him as he began his ministry? Okay, so as soon as he... Uh, finds out more of these things. Uh, you know, in verse 26, Priscilla and Aquila had explained to him the way of God more adequately. My translation has, what do you have at the end of verse more 26? More accurately. More accurately. It doesn't mean he's not been accurate, but he's just lacking information. Mm. Uh, but then he um, goes with them to Achaia, um, and the brothers encourage him, and they write a letter uh, to welcome him. And so we get this. We get epistles. Uh, the end of epistles, you have Paul commending this one or commending that one, or I, I submit to you our, our brother this or so-and-so that, et cetera. So this kind of thing's going on all the time. And so when he arrived at Achaia, he was, uh, it says, a great help to those who by grace had believed. See, these are Christians that are trying to evangelize their city. Hmm. And it says he vigorously refuted the Jews in public debate proving from the scriptures that Jesus was the Christ. So this is awesome. This is this is working from the scripture, asking questions, probing like Jesus did. What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? Son of David. Well, how is it then that David, speaking by the Spirit, calls him Lord? In Psalm 110, for he said, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemy enemies a footstool for your feet. If then David calls him Lord, how can he be his son? Hmm. That's 
a debating point or who do you think the suffering servant is in Isaiah 53 mm. who was pierced for our sins and slaughtered for our sins? Who could it be but Jesus? Mm. And showing from Isaiah who it was. So the Jews were, were refuted. They were defeated, uh, hopefully to their own salvation. It's good to lose a debate and win salvation. So I think that's fantastic. So Apollos was that kind of a polished speaker. It's so powerful. You know, you alluded or pointed ahead to verse 28 for us earlier to discuss how Apollos was teaching to begin with, but then to think after having been encouraged and instructed by Priscilla and Aquila, how rich this teaching would have been. And for us, I think of the consistency of God's word, that we can take the Old Testament scriptures and see how they point to Christ. We can take the New Testament and show the words and works of our Savior, and all of that is one unified whole as we proclaim the gospel. Absolutely. It's pretty awesome. Andy, what final thoughts do you have for us today, and what can we take away as we conclude chapter 18? Well, I think it's just so awesome um, that um, Apollos is the man he is, and we're going to find out more about him in heaven. And we learn more in 1 Corinthians about Apollos and the ministry he did. And I love this statement in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 6. I planted the seed, Apollos watered it, but God made it grow. Hmm. And that seems to be the ministry Apollos did after Paul left in Corinth. Along comes Apollos watering it, helping it make progress. And it's a beautiful image. But he also says, what after all is Paul and what is Apollos? Only servants um, to whom, through whom God did his work as each had his assigned task. And so we have these specific tasks. So I think it's beautiful. It's beautiful to see Priscilla and Aquila coming in there to help Apollos get ready for his work. That It's teamwork. It's beautiful to see the teamwork of the gospel and then different gifted ones doing awesome things. But after all, Apollos, Paul and Apollos are nothing. Only God who gives things, who makes things grow, that's all that matters. And so it's exciting how rich church history is with different personalities and different gifted ones. Um, but ultimately, all glory goes to God. Well, this has been episode 37 in our Acts Bible Study podcast. We want to invite you to join us next time for episode 38 entitled, Paul Fulfills His Promise and Ministers in Ephesus, where we'll discuss Acts chapter 19, verses 1 through 22. Thank you for listening to the Two Journeys podcast, and may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Thank you for listening to this resource from twojourneys.org. Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build His kingdom. Only we ask that you do so for non-commercial purposes and in accordance with the copyright policy found at twojourneys.org. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification, and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God.